Romans chapter 10. We're going to be doing, we're going to go back a little bit to chapter 8 and chapter 9, just very briefly, just to kind of give some context to what we're talking about today. I had a plan to go through the whole chapter today, but then after really studying and, and really seeing what Paul's trying to communicate to the church today, I realized that, holy cow, we got to stop sooner than the whole chapter. So we're going to go as far as 13, only because there needs to be a lot of explanation for what happens in this chapter. This is a, well, I'm just going to say that God's character is really on the chopping block in this chapter, because it really seems that these people known as the Israelites got the short end of the stick. They got the short end of God's promises. They got the short end of God's mercy. It seems like they've been dissed, like they've been left to the curve, right? And what Paul is going to do is he's going to defend God's honor or God's character. He's going to explain why God is still faithful after rejecting a people. In chapter 9, we talked about how God chooses to show mercy on some and chooses to reject others. And we ask the question, well, how the heck can he do that? But before I get into that, I, I, I just want to let you know that God's character is on the line here. And I will do the best that I can to clearly communicate what Paul is trying to explain to us today, uh, because Paul does an awesome job in explaining to it, so I don't want to butcher it. So uh, let's go before the Lord in prayer and just ask him to bless tonight. Uh, Father God, we commit this whole evening to you. It's in your hands. Lord, you have chosen to reveal these great things to us. And Lord, you've chosen to reveal them to those who are unwise and unlearned. Um, this, this great mystery that is your will and your plan for all of creation and for your people Israel. Uh, Lord, you have revealed that to us in your word by the power of your spirit. I pray, oh Lord, that you would open up our hearts and our eyes this evening that you would help us to see your goodness and your character and your faithfulness to this nation that is your people, Israel. Lord, you've chosen them, you've called them, and you have promises that you plan on fulfilling to them. But Lord, it seems because you've chosen some and rejected others that they have been rejected and been thrown away. But Lord, you do not reject your people. You don't reject them. So Father, I just um, commit this whole evening to you. Teach us of your character. Would we leave here just glorifying your name even more? Would we leave here changed and challenged to go out into this world and to, to uh, be a representation of who you are, ambassadors of Christ? And I just pray these things in your precious name, Jesus. Teach us today. Amen. So chapters 1 through 3, just a little review. Paul does an amazing job telling us of our problem that we as mankind have rejected and rebelled against our creator, God. And he says that no one seeks after God, no, not one, but all have rejected God, God all turn away from God. And so God's wrath is upon mankind because of our rebellion against him. That's chapters one through three. Chapters four through six presents us with our solution that the righteousness of God has been revealed through Christ, that the requirement to enter into heaven, the requirement to be in a right relationship with God is perfection. But what's our problem? Is that nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. And you can't earn perfection. There's nothing that you can do to earn it, right? Somebody has to give it to you. It has to be gifted to you. And Christ has gifted his perfection to us when we accept him. Um, 
He says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, okay? So that is our solution, okay? When we accept that solution, when we live it out, Paul tells us in chapter 8 that now since we are in Christ, there is what? No condemnation. No condemnation. And that means that there's no condemnation on the day of judgment, and there's also no condemnation now, today, when you're living for Jesus. We have an inheritance waiting for us. We have every spiritual blessing and every treasure. We have security that's found in the Holy Spirit that seals us. So there's all these awesome promises that we have when we give our lives to Jesus because God has promised us, if you trust me, you won't, um, you won't be disappointed. You won't be disappointed. So like Brett and Ethan have been explaining, you know, Paul gets to the top of this mountain and he's like, God has done so much to save us to redeem us, to purchase us from the bondage of sin and to save us from death. And he comes up and he's like reaching this mountaintop and he looks back and he's sad. And why did we say he was sad? Why did we say he was disappointed? Why? Because Israel's not with him, right? His kinsmen, his brothers are not with him. And so this whole chapter is explaining why that is. What happened? What the heck happened? The Israelites were God's chosen people. God had called them out of a pagan nation and he made promises to them to prosper and he promised to bless them. And now we see that God has rejected them. What the heck? What's going on, God? I thought when God made promises to us, he was faithful to fulfill them. I thought we have security in salvation. How is it that God rejects his own people? Will he reject us as well? Because he's made promises to us. You see how God's character is on the line right now? God's character is on the stand today. So Paul is going to defend it and he's going to explain it um, that God is still faithful. And he can reject and he can receive. And those things don't affect his faithfulness. So... A summary and a look at what's coming today, we, we have this main theme, right? This umbrella theme, and it is um, Israel's rejection of the Messiah. So at the end of today, there's going to be this warning that I'm going to, you know, warn you guys about. And it's, it's a trap that Israel fell under. And I hope that we would not fall under the same trap. Um, but how could God let... Israel reject Jesus. What does that have to say about God's faithfulness? How is, that, how is it that the Jews rejected Jesus even in the first place? Weren't they looking for Jesus? So, Paul is defending God's faithfulness to Israel, but I titled this message, What About Israel? And so what we're going to try to do is explain Israel's rejection of Jesus, because there's a lot on the line. God promised them a Messiah. God even brought them a Messiah. And yet, very few Jews in that day and today, in fact, recognize Jesus as Messiah and have become his followers. So let's do a little review. Chapter 8, Paul declares that our eternal future was secure and our glory is assured because God has made promises to us in his word concerning these very things, okay? But given Israel's circumstances, are God's promises so certain after all? 
So now Paul's explaining God's faithfulness by explaining Israel's unbelief and how it's consistent with God's faithfulness. In other words, Israel's unbelief doesn't prove that God is unable to keep his promises. The fact that Israel rejects Jesus does not mean that God is not faithful to Israel. You understand? Instead, it proves that God is faithful to them. Chapter 9, Paul begins by explaining that throughout Israel's history, the Lord has selected some for mercy, and he's also rejected some. And who can tell me some of the examples that Paul gave in chapter 9? Who can tell me what are some of the examples that he gave? He gave two brothers, right? What are their names? Jacob and Esau. Esau. God selected Jacob, and he rejected Esau. In fact, it says that he hated Esau. (gasps) But we talked about that already, okay? Again, Paul showed that God selected a man called Pharaoh to be defeated in a confrontation with Moses by hardening his heart to ensure that his people would be set free from the bondage of Egypt. And finally, Paul said that for both Jew and Gentile, God selects some for glory while preparing others for destruction. What the heck is going on? This pattern, you see, is consistent. Paul states that this pattern is consistent with God's perfect holiness and his justification. God is just to do both of those things. So let's start in chapter 9, verse 30. And we're going to read this twice. But he says, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith? But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, what's the worst part of Israel's rejection of God? What's the worst part? The worst part is that God is the cause of that rejection. That's the worst part, is that God is the reason why they rejected Jesus. Who does it say put the stumbling stone in front of Israel? It says that God did. God is saying, I have set this stumbling stone in front of them so that they would stumble. So Paul at the end of chapter 9 explains that Israel's rejection of Jesus was God's predetermined choice. Think about that. God made Israel, knew that this would happen, and let it happen. And that is to say that God wasn't and isn't unfaithful to Israel when he rejects them. God is not unfaithful to Israel or to any of us when he rejects us. Why? How? Because God still selects a remnant of Israel to show mercy. He doesn't reject them all. He chooses some to show mercy too. But Israel's current circumstances, Paul kind of dives into it. And this is ultimately where we're going to go tonight in chapter 10. Um, but let's, let's read it again. Well, I want to pull a question from that passage that we just read. And the passage is just 
kind of reiterating our umbrella theme, which is how do we explain Israel's rejection of Jesus? How is their rejection consistent with God choosing and giving mercy to whomever he wills? And Paul helps us to understand this by contrasting the effect of Jesus's arrival on both the Gentiles and the Jews. What was the reaction of Jesus coming? Like, how did the Jews react when Jesus came? And how did the Gentiles react when Jesus came? First of all, who's a Gentile in this room? Everybody raise your hand. We're all Gentiles, unless you're a Jew. You're a Jew? We have one Jew in here, right? Um, what happened? How did each group respond to Jesus's arrival? Well, let's consider it, okay? Because they are totally different. They're totally different. The Gentiles took hold of the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus. Jesus came and said he was God, and the Gentiles believed him. While the Jews ignored Jesus, preferring to seek for a righteousness on their own. It's almost like this. If I were to say in this room, without anybody knowing math, that two plus two equals four, and after some explanation, I wrote it out, two plus two equals four, you carry the one, subtract it, da, 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 boom, two plus two equals four. Everybody, you know, with the same mental capacity would say, yeah, that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I agree with that. Two plus two equals four. Nobody in this room would hate my answer so much that they would want to kill me, right? This outcome is exactly what happened to Israel. Israel, the obviousness of it anyway, that Jesus was God and was the Messiah and came to fulfill all the requirements of the law was just as obvious to Israel as two plus two equals four. And so this outcome that Israel should reject the Messiah was not expected, at least on human standard. God knew it was going to happen, right? So much so that it can only be blamed on God, right? And this is what is happening. God is transferring his mercy from one people group and he's putting it on another people group. He's transferring his mercy on one people group and he's putting it on another people group, okay? Because here's the thing, the Gentiles back then when Jesus came were ignorant. Naturally, they weren't looking for God. They were naturally not pursuing righteousness. But the Jews were the opposite. They were actively pursuing righteousness for generations. They, were, they treasured the word. They cared for the word. They knew the word. They longed for a Messiah, and they still do. And they talked about his kingdom and how they would enjoy it when he came. So when you look at these two groups, which one do you think would receive the Messiah gladly? Which one? When you look at these two groups, the Jews, right? You would look at the Jews and you say they're zealous for God. They follow the law. They should know the law, right? They do these things. They pray, they give. When Jesus came, they should receive him, right? But what happened? They didn't. They did not receive him. In fact, the Gentiles who had nothing to do with any of those things received him. So what the heck happened? What happened was that the Jews sought to receive righteousness by the law and not by Jesus. So Israel was blinded by their own pride so that they didn't see the Messiah when he came. And I just, to help explain this, I want you to imagine a race, okay? Uh, picture a race and you have two runners, okay? The first runner is gonna be a Gentile. And this Gentile, 
doesn't even realize he's in a race. He's completely oblivious. He's just moving around the track, probably going in circles, chasing flies. There's no urgency. He doesn't even know he's in a race. He's not running for a prize. He doesn't even know there's a prize. He's just walking around, okay? And then I want you to imagine this Jewish runner. On the other hand, this Jewish runner, he's giving this race everything he's got. He's intently focused on finishing the, the race. He's determined to obtain the prize. It's in his view. He's got it. He's going for it. But then this rock just comes down from heaven and falls directly in front of the track, right in the path of the Jewish runner. And tied to that rock is a prize. And that prize is exactly what the runner's competing for. But the Jew is so intently focused that he doesn't see the rock or the prize and he stumbles over it. Meanwhile, the Gentile runner, just like la di da di da walking around, he stumbles upon the Jewish runner stumbling upon the rock. He sees the Jewish runner stumbling upon the rock and the Jewish runner intent on finishing the race stumbles and gets back up and keeps going. The Gentile runner is like, what the heck did he stumble over? Goes up to the rock, sees it, sees the prize attached to it and obtains it without earning it, without striving for it, without doing anything. But here's the thing. If not for the Jewish runner stumbling over that rock, the Gentile would have never seen it, would have never noticed it. But it's because the Jewish runner stumbled over it that the Gentile received it. And so it is with salvation with us. It's because Israel has stumbled over Christ that we now are able to receive him. Israel's present circumstances are due to a deceived and hardened heart. So who laid the stone of stumbling? Who laid it down? God did. Let's look at uh, 9... 33, it says, as it is written, behold, I, who's the I here? It's God. Am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. God is the one. The point is, is that God promised the Messiah. And he told Israel what to look for. And he brought him. He brought the Messiah just as he said he would. God did exactly as he promised. So Israel rejected it. And in fact, God laid it down knowing that they would reject it. So now we Gentiles have a Messiah. And so God has shifted his mercy to ignorant Gentiles from Jews, which is an outcome that God predetermined for his people. He allowed them to be who they are, knowing what would happen. So the question that we're asking today is, is God still faithful? Is God wrong in doing that? And the answer is no, he's not. He's not wrong. And so at the end of today, we're still going to be left with a big question of why. Like why? What for? Why did God do all this? What, what's the point? And that's going to be explained at, in the rest of the chapter. We're only getting to chapter 13. But there is a point for tonight. Oh, and chapter 11 really explains it well. Uh, I think Ethan is going to be explaining chapter 11. So Ethan, you got this, bro. Good luck. But now we Gentiles have a Messiah. So is God faithful? And the answer is yes. He is absolutely faithful. He is not unjust in doing the things that he does. He did exactly what he promised to do. Why is he still faithful? Because 
God gave Israel every opportunity to receive the Messiah. And they rejected him. They rejected him. So, we come to a new question. What should we expect from Israel today? And Paul, in this chapter, addresses these stumbling blocks. So just imagine Paul is preemptively going to ask a question that he thinks his supposed opponent or adversary might ask as Paul's bringing up all these uh, truths about God's character in choosing and rejecting. And so this is the game plan. We're going to read the passage, and then we're going to try to pull the question that the Israelites or that a Jew might ask according to this passage, okay? So there are five questions in this chapter that Paul's going to be answering. We're only going to answer one, okay? The rest we're going to answer next week. But again, remember, remember the umbrella theme. Remember that Israel has rejected God because God has chosen to not show them mercy. And he instead shows us mercy. Just think about how that makes God look. How does that make God look? I want to hear some thoughts. Bias. Ooh, that's good. Anyone else? I hear whispering. I think it makes God look really unfair. You guys agree? Really unfair. Unfaithful? This chapter is a defense for God's character. God is being blamed for Israel's rejection. That's the heart of what we're, what we're talking about. God is being blamed for Israel, Israel's rejection. But as we'll see, God is not to blame. Why? Because God did everything and more to prepare the Israelites for the coming Messiah. So let's read verses 1 through 4. And this, is, uh, this was touched on by Brett, but we're just going to touch on it just very lightly. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for God for them is that they may be saved. So Paul just reiterates his position because at this point, his readers are probably thinking, dude, you don't even care about the Jews. You look at all the things you're writing about us, right? But Paul is just reiterating his stance. He's like, no, I care about the Jews. I care about them. I am a Jew. That's what he's saying. He's saying that he is a Jew and he cares about them. So he says, brothers, my, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And this is a passage also that demonstrates that these things are already done. God has rejected them and he, he rejected them far way, 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 way back. These things are predetermined, but that does not, that should not discourage us from doing things today, right? And this is just an application for us now. We know that God is sovereign. We know that God is in control of all these things and he chooses some and he rejects others, but that does not mean that we should stand and just idly by and let these things happen. No, we have a responsibility today to go out and to tell the nations, to go out and minister, to go out and to disciple. We have a responsibility today to be obedient to the scriptures, to be obedient to the calling. Jesus even said it, go out and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So he says for, in verse two, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not acknowledging or, or not according to knowledge for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Here's what happened with Israel. Israel was sincerely religious. They had a zeal for God. And I love what Brett said. It's almost like 
you see your friend, your best friend, who has a zeal for God, a passion for God, and then praying for them to be saved. What? So what's going on here? They did the law. They followed the rules. They knew it. So many people, many of the Jewish people thought that their zeal would be enough for God to show them mercy. And you know, many religions think that today. Islam and Mormonism require their members to be zealous for their regulations. But here's the thing. Zeal for God is not the way to God. Why? Because zeal is worthless without knowledge and understanding. It says here, for I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but what? Not according to what? Knowledge. You can't have one without the other. Israel lacked understanding. They lacked an understanding that salvation came by God's righteousness and not works. They didn't know that the very thing that they were striving to acquire, which was righteousness, was the very thing that they could not acquire. You cannot earn righteousness. It is impossible. You need someone to give you righteousness. You cannot erase your sins by works. No matter how long you pray, no matter how many people you serve, no matter how, many, how much money you give, you cannot erase one sin from your past on your own. You can't do it. It only takes one sin to make you less than God. It only takes one offense to condemn you. One. And in Israel's pride, they failed to realize that only God can perform the law perfectly. And yet they wanted to do it on their own. So Israel's zeal for the law was not a reason for God to reward them. In fact, it was the very thing that led to their demise. So let's continue. Let's read um, 5 to 13. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? That the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what's a question that you might ask about the law concerning the Israelites? One of the things that I was thinking about is, did God mislead Israel in giving them a law? Because the Israels thought that the law was the way to go. You know, if I do the law and if I do it well, if I do all of it, I'm going to get to heaven. I'm going to be made right before God. So did God mislead Israel in giving them a law that was not the ultimate means of their salvation? I think this is a fair question to ask, given that Israel's zeal to follow the law was what actually led to their rejection, right? So Paul, in this passage, quotes Leviticus 18 and Deuteronomy 30 here. So in Leviticus 18, he says, the person who does the commandment shall live by them. So what's he saying? Well, he's saying, in other words, that if you do the law, you have to do it, man. You can't make any mistakes. 
do the law. If you're going to do the law, you have to live by it. Okay? You have to follow it to the T. You break one part of the law, you break the whole law. So why does Paul say this? Because God has given the minimum requirement in the law. And what's the minimum requirement of the law? It's perfection. It's righteousness. That's the minimum. That's the minimum. If you want to go to heaven, you have to be perfect. You have to be righteous. And that has always been the standard. It's the standard then and it's the standard now. Perfection. The law was the standard. The law was not the way to perfection, but a warning. And this is why God is not to blame for Israel thinking that the law was the way. Because the law was never intended to be the way. It was never intended to be the way to salvation. That's why rules can't save you. Rules are, were never meant to save you. You being a good person doesn't save you. You ask people, why, why are you going to go to heaven? It's, go oh, because I think I'm a good person. But that, does, that has nothing to do with your salvation. If anything, you thinking you're a good person condemns you. Condemns people. The law was the standard. The law was not the way to perfection, but instead it was a warning. It would says, hey, try following this. You can't. You can't follow it because this is perfection. And if you try following it, you're going to fail. So the law was a standard. It was a standard to get into heaven. It was a standard to be in fellowship with God. The law wasn't a trick, but a warning. You guys got that? So then how did people receive salvation then? You ask, like, well, how did people get saved then? If we get saved now by believing in Jesus, how did people get saved then? Well, he says it here. He says it in verses 9 and 10, and we'll read that right now. But Paul quotes Deuteronomy 30. He says, don't say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? And what's happening here in Deuteronomy 30, Paul is quoting Moses because Moses is directing the nation of Israel to not use the excuse of saying, I can't follow the law because it's too complicated for me. Or I can't follow the law because I need somebody to teach me. Or I can't follow the law because it's in heaven. I need somebody to go up in heaven and get it for me. Instead, the law is in your head and it's on your heart. Israel didn't have to do the law perfectly in order to get Christ. And that's what they thought. And that's what Moses is warning the people not to do. In fact, it was because they couldn't do the law perfectly that Christ came down. It's because we cannot fulfill the law perfectly that Christ came down, suffered and died on our behalf and gives us his righteousness so that we might fulfill the law perfectly. Not having earned it, not having even known what it was before our salvation. <coughs> so, you get Jesus because you realize that you can't earn your way to Jesus. Being a good person is not the way to Jesus. Being the good person is not the way to heaven. It's just not. But the thing is, in our pride, we think that that's the way. Well, if I just am a good person, if I just be a good Samaritan, right, I'm, I'm going to be okay. But that's the trap. That's a trap. So here's the application. There's a way that seems right to a man, but leads to death. The Israelites, the Jews, were sincerely zealous, but they were sincerely wrong. And there are people here and in our world and in our families that are sincerely zealous for God, but sincerely wrong. 
everyone wants to get to God and go to heaven. Think that doing the right thing and being a good person is the way to go. But in fact, it's because we can't do the right thing and aren't good people that Christ came down in the first place. Like Israel, our pride keeps us from realizing just how deprived we really are. If not for our depravity, Jesus would never have to come down. In fact, in Colossians 1.21, it says, and you were once alienated. You were alienated and hostile in your mind because of the evil deeds that you used to do. But you might say, well, I was a good person. What are you talking about? The thing is, is that even our goodness is considered dirty rags, right? Before him, we were alienated because of our evil deeds. And the point isn't to try being a good person. The point is to just love Jesus. It's just to love Jesus for who he is and for what he's done for us. And in doing so, the fruit of that brings out good works in a renewed heart. Let's go back to the text. Moses and Paul are both saying the same things, that a confession of faith is what saves, not works. Let's take a closer look. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What is that? Starts with a P. It is a promise. It is a promise. If you confess and believe, you will be saved. If you confess and believe, you will be saved. So now the confession and the belief, they're not two separate things. They're one thing. It's like a coin. It's one thing, but it has two faces, right? They aren't doing two different things, but it's the process of the same thing. They're interchangeable. Both are necessary. A confession of faith is all that is needed to be saved, but that confession of faith happens in two parts. And if you're a believer in Christ, you have done that. A confession of the mouth and the belief in the heart. So moving on to verse 11, what's the whole point? For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. They will not be put to shame. The one who believes in the Messiah won't be disappointed on the day of judgment. When Jesus comes back, they won't be disappointed. Well, how do I know if God has rejected me? Well, have you believed in the Messiah? Have you confessed? Have you believed? If you haven't, then you're rejected. But if you confess and believe, then you are not. Confess and believe. Confess and believe. That's the application here. That's the point here. Confess and believe. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. But it says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And we've all heard this before. But the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, on that day, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, this is the worst part, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Depart from me. Imagine the disappointment. Imagine the disappointment that these people are going to feel who haven't confessed, who haven't believed that Jesus is the Messiah that he was risen from the grave, that he rose on the third day. Imagine the disappointment when they get to God and they say, God, I'm ready to go. 
Let me in, dude. Give me the angel wings. Give me the halo. I'm ready. Let's go. And Jesus says, dude, depart from me. I never knew you. Imagine the disappointment. Paul says here in verse 11, everyone who believes in him will not be disappointed on that day. You will not be disappointed on that day if you believe and confess. And that's the application. That's the application. Israel, all they had to do was believe and confess. That's all they had to do. Don't get caught up in the fact that God both receives, gives mercy, and rejects. Just believe. They both are in Scripture. They both happen. We don't understand it. How is that fair? God is merciful still in all of that. But despite all of that, have you confessed and believed? That's what Paul is trying to drive here. And just for a final word, the warning. It's so simple. Attaining righteousness is so simple. Attaining the requirement of heaven is insanely simple. All you have to do is confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and it says you will be saved. How many hoops do you have to jump through? Zero. How many miles do you have to run? None. You can do it on your couch. You can do it right now, sitting down. Right? It's simple. Matthew eleven twenty five. 25. I don't know if you guys have read that verse. I'm sure you have, but Jesus is talking And he says, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things. And he's talking about his word from the wise and understanding. And you revealed them to little children. Israel thought that they were wise. And people who reject Jesus today think they're wise. Israel In all of their understanding, in all of their strife, they knew the word, they knew the laws, they heard the prophets, they heard the voice of God. And yet when God himself came to them, they rejected him. And the warning is this. Right now, we're studying Romans. And we're engaging the three-pound brain in between our ears. We're learning and we're gaining knowledge. Have you missed it? Have you missed Jesus? Just like Israel did. All their knowledge, all their strife, all their works. They missed it. Have you missed it? Are you missing it? Are you missing the point? The whole reason why we study is to know God and to enjoy Him forever. To glorify our Jesus, our Messiah. Is Jesus Christ just an abstract thought to you? Or is he your Lord and your Savior, your Master? Have you missed it? Ask yourself. We study, but just because you study does not make you an obedient Christian. Just because you read God's Word and because you pray and because you worship doesn't mean you're an obedient Christian. Are you missing it like Israel missed it? On that day, When we're called into heaven, are you going to be disappointed? I hope not. I hope not. I ask you and plead 
Don't miss Jesus. Don't miss Jesus. Examine your heart and your life and see if the one you serve is not yourself, but is Jesus. And if you haven't yet believed, then here's a fruit for thought. Kobe Bryant recently passed away and it presented an awesome opportunity for us uh, to present the gospel to students who are fans of Kobe, who are fans of the Lakers. I, I work with a ministry called FCA and it presented just an awesome opportunity to talk to these students about these things. And I heard that if there's anything that Kobe wants us to know now, it's that there is a God. There is a God. And this God keeps us accountable for the lives that we've lived. So remember, if you are anything less than perfect, then you will not be going to heaven but to hell. But if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Christ from the grave, then you will be saved. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for making salvation so simple and for revealing it to people who are like children. I pray, O oh Lord, that we wouldn't get caught up in how you receive and show mercy and at the same time reject, but Lord, that we would ask ourselves, will we be disappointed on the day of judgment or will we be joyful and glad that we'd be received into your kingdom, God? Lord, I just pray that we would examine our hearts tonight and that we would leave here with a greater appreciation of the simplicity of salvation and how simple it is to look to you and say, save me and then be saved. Oh Lord, you're so awesome for sending your son to pay for our sin debt, to be the one that we can call savior and friend, justifier, propitiation, the atonement for our sins. Thank you, God. Would we give you glory this evening and be changed? Would we be encouraged that you are good and you are faithful still? In Jesus' name, amen.